Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It's a pleasure to get to be with you this morning. If you're new, welcome. Uh, we uh, love getting to go through God's word together. And we're in the very part of scripture that we were just singing in that song together. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Last Sunday, if you were with us, you know we took some time to, to read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this Sermon on the Mount together. And this Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to start uh, teaching through it. If you don't have a Bible, we got some ushers who would love to put one in your hand as well. We're going to take our time as we go through this. In many ways, this is like the... Um, the magnum opus in many ways. This, this is the one, one commentator I was reading. He said, this is the closest thing that we have to a manifesto from Jesus, where he lays out his vision for life. And I would say not his vision for life for all of humanity, though I believe what the Sermon on the Mount says is good for people everywhere. But what Jesus lays out in this sermon is the way that he calls his people to live in a way that is distinct from, different from those around us yet for the sake of those around us, to be a witness to those around us. He does not give us a vision for life as a holy huddle hidden off in the hills somewhere while the rest of the world burns. But nor does he tell us, on the, on the other hand, to make it our mission to radically revolutionize all of human society. Instead, what we see throughout this sermon is him calling his people to live differently within this world as a witness to this world, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, as salt to the world, as light to the world. So what we're gonna do this morning, we're gonna take a look at the beginning and what, what's known as the Beatitudes. Um, and we're gonna just look at the first four today. My message is gonna kinda be, I guess, in two parts. About half of our time is just gonna kinda be spent prepping us, giving us main things to look for as we move through this sermon and especially through these Beatitudes. And then kind of the second half of it, we're going to look in particular at the first of these statements, the first four of these statements that Jesus says. In the 1970s, there was a, a famous uh, British pastor by the name of John Stott. He wrote a great work on the Sermon on the Mount, but he said this about the sermon. He called the Sermon on the Mount probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. More than 40 years later, he wrote that in the late 1970s, over 40 years later, I would say those words still ring true. Though I would say, I would venture to guess that now 40 years later, the Sermon on the Mount is less well known than it was in the 1970s, both within the culture as a whole and sadly even within the church. And that's a shame because the message of the Sermon on the Mount is just as relevant today as ever to this calling that Jesus has given us to live as this distinct community before those who are around us. What it looks like to live in a way that shows the goodness, the blessedness of life under God's rule, as of life in God's kingdom. And as we can see from the very first sentence that Jesus utters in this sermon, the kingdom of heaven is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. 
So here's what I want you to see. The main point over the next four or so months that we go through this sermon, here's the main point. I'm going to let you know right off the front on that I'm going to hit on, that Todd's going to hit on as we go through this. And it's this. The main point of the Sermon on the Mount is about living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven among the kingdoms of this world. We're going to continue to unpack that each week, even this morning as well. We'll even see how it relates to different ways that people have viewed this sermon at different times. But again, this morning, our focus is going to be on what are known as the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now, that word Beatitude is a little bit funny. In some ways, we read that word and we think, oh, this is about our attitudes. This is Jesus's be attitudes versus don't be attitudes. Actually, the word Beatitude, it comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed happy, joyful. It's taken from the first word in each one of these statements of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and so forth. This is talking about the blessed life. That word blessed can even be translated as happy or joyful. That what we have here in the Beatitudes is Jesus's description of the truly blessed life, the truly good life, the character, the habits, the actions that God blesses, that he affirms, that he commends, that he delights in. His description of those whom God blesses. And those whom God blesses not just because they live this way, but they live this way as an outflow of God's blessing in their lives. This is the character that he forms within those who come to him and trust in him and follow him. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to see as we go through this together. What I want to do is I want to give you, uh, we're going to read the passage together, and then uh, I'll give you kind of five pointers to shape the way that we look at all of these beatitudes. A couple of application points to keep in mind as we go through it. And then we'll jump into them together. So if you will, in your Bibles, take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We'll look at this first. It says that Jesus, seeing the crowds at the end of chapter 4, says they're coming to him from all different places. They're coming to him there in the area of Galilee. So Jesus sees the crowds, and he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them saying, and then the sermon begins. But what I want you to notice just in these two verses before we jump ahead is right there, Matthew gives us the two audiences of Jesus's sermon, the disciples and the crowds. Clearly the disciples are the primary audience. This sermon is a lesson in discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. But the disciples aren't the only ones that are there. We know that there are the crowds. I don't know if they're sitting farther back or just mixed in amongst them. But we know the crowds are there listening to everything that Jesus says because they're the ones who respond at the end, at the end of chapter 7, saying, wow, this guy teaches with an authority that we haven't seen before. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. So get this. This sermon is both at the same time instruction for disciples and an invitation to be a disciple to those who are not yet. And my prayer is that as we go through this sermon, that it will have the same effect upon us. For those of you who may not yet be disciples of Jesus, I pray that as you hear and heed the words of Jesus, you would receive, you would accept that invitation. Come join us in this way of life. We don't live it perfectly at all, but we are striving for him who is perfect. 
And for those of you who are followers of of this Jesus, I pray that this sermon ignites in us a greater passion to truly be the people that God has called us to be. To live not just individual Christian lives, but to live as a Christian community within our community in a way that truly is salt and light to our world. So we've done this a couple of times, but as we read through these Beatitudes together, would you stand with me if you are able? And let's read verses three through 12 together. You can follow along on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. There is an economy of words and such depth of meaning in what Jesus says here, isn't it? It flows like poetry, but no poet's ever been this deep. There is such richness and and what is challenging and convicting and inspiring here. And the reality is both this Sunday and next Sunday, we really only have the opportunity to touch on the depth of this. Literally each of these beatitudes of Jesus could be a sermon in its own right. And that's what many preachers have done throughout the years. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another famous British preacher, he has, uh, he's written this, uh, this work. It's a collection of his sermons on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's 600 pages long. It is like the gold standard modern work on the Sermon on the Mount. And of those 600 pages, he has 100 pages devoted to the Beatitudes alone. There's so much more detail that he's able to go into. And I highly recommend his work to you. Again, if this whets your appetite to dive in deeper. But what I want to do this Sunday and next, because I think there's something really helpful about looking at the Beatitudes, not just each one of them on their own, but looking at the way that they work in relation to each other. As I hope you'll see as we go over these, there's a logical flow to these Beatitudes. They, They build on each other. They're also not eight separate characteristics. There's no a la carte option with this. I like this one, but not that one. In many ways, what Jesus does in the Beatitudes, it's like he takes a single diamond and he keeps turning it for us and we see the flashes of different facets. This is a a unified whole that describes the character and conduct that Jesus is seeking to shape in us, that characterizes citizens of his kingdom. But keep in mind as we go through this, this is just an introduction. It's an orientation. And I do hope it whets your appetite to dig into these further. Okay, so again, as I mentioned before, Here's five pointers. 
to guide us as we look at the Sermon on the, uh, uh, I guess in some ways the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, but particularly these Beatitudes of Jesus. First one's this. Like I said before, they just reiterate the main point of the sermon. The Beatitudes are about living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven among the kingdoms of this world. Jesus keeps drawing these contrasts, shaping us as a contrast community to those around us. So as we go through these, look at the Beatitudes and think to yourself, how is the lifestyle that Jesus describes here different than the way that those around me live? How is it different than the way I normally live? How are Jesus' Beatitudes calling me to change? The second point I would say is this. The Beatitudes do describe the good life, but ain't, this ain't no puppy dogs and rainbows life. This is the good, blessed life lived in the midst of a broken world. This is the way of life that is truly blessed, that will be worth it in the end, even though it involves, as we just read, mourning and persecution now. It necessitates exercising mercy toward others, operating as peacemakers because there is not often peace in our world and on our relationships. This is the blessed life in the midst of brokenness, including our own brokenness. The third point is this. The Beatitudes that we see here, they are already and not yet. Perhaps you picked up on that as we read through it, as we read through it together. And if you haven't, I guess say, look back at verses again, three through 12, and pay attention to the tenses of the verbs that Jesus uses. You'll see the way that he switches back and forth between the present and the future. Blessed are the poor in spirit now, presently blessed, because theirs presently now is the kingdom of heaven. But then you get to the next one, and how does it change? Blessed are those who mourn because... They will be comforted. Present blessing now, but the comfort is to come in the future. As a matter of fact, as you look through those Beatitudes, it's the first one and the last one that are stated in the present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is all describing the lifestyle of the kingdom and the way that we live now. But the fullness of the blessing, the reward of following Jesus in this difficult way of life will be seen in the future. Do you see that? Yes, the ultimate future, the resurrection, new heaven, new earth, when God wipes away every tear from our eye and mourning and crying and pain and sin and even temptation are no more. That will be worth it. But even in, I guess you could say, the closer future, as we walk in this lifestyle with Jesus, we experience true tastes of this blessedness now. And we give an aroma of that to those around us. So already and not yet, already blessed fullness of that blessing to come. That's what we'll see as we go through these. The fourth point for you to keep track of, and again, if you haven't been, I would encourage you to pull out a phone, take pictures of these. I can go back. You can get my notes from me afterward. Keep track of these as you dig in these together. The fourth point, the Beatitudes are unified, not separate qualities. I touched on this just a second ago. Sometimes we can read through this and go, okay, yeah, maybe I'm like a B minus in that one. I might want to be more of like a D minus in another one. But hey, at least I'm good over here. 
Or you might look at it and say, yeah, I love that. Oh, I love that idea of being a peacemaker. That really compels me. Yes, I want to see peace done in this world. I'm not sure I like this whole idea of being persecuted for trying to do that. This is a unified description of the character and conduct of those who are part of Jesus' kingdom, who submit to him as king. Sam Storms, another commentator, pastor said this, Jesus is not saying that some Christians are poor in spirit, others are meek, others are pure in heart, etc. These are to be qualities of the same person. All of us, by God's grace, are to experience all of these characteristics. So again, as we look at these, ask yourself, where do I see these attributes and actions present in my life? Where do I see where I need to grow? The fifth one, the Beatitudes have kind of a logical flow to them. And this is what we'll explore this week and next. You can kind of look at the first four of them and see how generally they, re they refer to how we relate to God. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering for righteousness. And yet along the way, we also start to see this horizontal turn, the sense in which the next four more shape the way that we operate in mercy, peacemaking, even enduring persecution as we operate in relationships with others. So those are kind of those five main pointers to keep in mind as we look at these as a whole. And we'll come back to these next week as well. I also want to just give you these three application questions to think through for yourself as we go through these. Again, first off, Jesus says this is the truly best blessed life. The life that will be worth it in the end that is even worth it now. Do I believe that? Do I believe that it's worth it, that it's truly blessed to live this way? Jesus will say later on in chapter seven, the lifestyle that he is describing is the narrow gate the hard path that few find, but it leads to life. Do you believe that? Secondly, do I believe that the qualities that Jesus describes here in the, in the Beatitudes are essential to our witness? Essential to being that salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. The way that we live differently from the world around us for the sake of those around us. And then lastly, based upon those, if I believe that this is truly blessed, if I believe that this is what it means to give a witness for Jesus to those around us, am I willing to follow Jesus on this path? Not to have arrived at this already, but say, Jesus, lead me. I want to be an apprentice with you in this way of living. Teach me, show me, make this a reality in my life. And not only for you, but for others. That's, that changes our perspective on it a little bit, doesn't it? Yes, Jesus, I believe it's worth it to be persecuted for righteousness sake for me. But to think of my kids going through that. But yet if this is the truly blessed life, this is blessed not just for me, but for my kids as well, should they choose to follow Jesus? Am I willing to lead them and guide them toward this same way of life? We'll come back to these questions a little bit at the end, but in our remaining time, let's start now in verse three and let's start working our way through these. Verse three, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Clearly Jesus isn't just talking about financial 
poverty, but he uses that almost as like a metaphor for what he's talking about here. In the same way to be financially or economically poor, materially poor, means that you don't have what you need for yourself and you must look to others and depend upon others for it. That's what Jesus is talking about here with this idea to be poor in spirit. I don't have what I need on my own before God to be approved, accepted in his sight. I'm not gonna get this from myself. I come needy to him. Again, this is Sam Storms, he described it like this. He said, poverty of spirit is the conscious confession of absolute spiritual destitution before God. Ooh, those are some big words in there. The poor in spirit is the person who senses deeply in their heart that they are impoverished and approaches God on no other basis than that of need. This person, this is the person who banks solely on the righteousness that God provides through grace. And Jesus says to us, that the person who is willing to acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, their neediness on their own, who approaches God, not with their resume of what they have to offer him, but needy. Not only are we not disqualified from God's kingdom because of that, it's a prerequisite for citizenship in his kingdom. Do you see that? He says, there's is the kingdom of heaven. You can't be a citizen in God's kingdom if you try to stand on your own accomplishments, boast in your own skills. If you have this competitive drive to be better than those around you and therefore your worth is based upon the fact that I did it better than they did, you will not come to God needy. It's what Jesus will say later on, a few chapters later in chapter nine, when the Pharisees will come to him and say, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Because I came like a doctor for the sick, not those who think that they're healthy on their own. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So let me ask you, church, do you see this quality in your life? Do you see and acknowledge that poorness of spirit? There's a song we've begun to sing over the last few months called Good and Gracious King. And I love the opening lines to it because it describes the very thing that Jesus is talking about. We approach the king of, of glory and nothing in our hands do we bring except the promise of acceptance from him, from a good and gracious king. Jesus, you say if we come needy, if we come acknowledging we have nothing on our own to make us approvable in your sight, that that's how you accept us. I come with that promise. I come needy. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next beatitude builds on this one. When Jesus says in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I think the best way to understand this one is in connection with the previous one. Mourning over our poverty of spirit, mourning over our sin and the effects that it has on our lives. I don't think necessarily that here Jesus has in mind just mourning grief in general such as like the grief over losing a loved one or something like that. Though clearly, clearly, don't miss this. Clearly we see in scripture that God has comfort for those who mourn the loss of loved ones and mourn other types of loss in this life. 
I mean, ultimately, I referenced this before. The promise we see in Revelation 21, that one day God himself will wipe away our tears from our eyes. There is comfort for all who mourn, who look to God. Amen? In particular, though, I think here he's talking about this mourning in connection with our poverty, our poorness of spirit. Citizens of God's kingdom, the truly blessed life is lived by those who do not just casually acknowledge our sinfulness and our struggles. Who don't just kind of say, yeah, I know I messed up. I know I shouldn't have done that. But I mean, come on, no one's perfect, right? If you stop there, what do you do with the end of chapter five when Jesus looks at us, his disciples, and says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do you tend to minimize your sin or mourn over it? Our emotions ought to be affected. When we see the effect of sin in our own lives, the friction, the breakdown that it causes in our relationships, when we see the effects of sin in the world around us, we don't just move on and thumb the song in our head. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. No, no, we don't do that. We don't get flippant and minimize sin because we of all people, as people of this king who has promised to wipe away every tear from our eye, we ought to mourn because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you see that? Do you see that quality in your life? When you sin, when you struggle, do you see true sorrow, contrition, mourning in your life? Think about it this way. Do you tend to make a bigger deal out of the sins of others than you make out of your own? It could be on the macro level. You look at the society around us, you look at the decisions that people made, maybe propositions that were passed over the past week, and you go, that is so terrible. It is. Where do you see yourself in that mix? If you're married, does your spouse's sin seem to be a bigger problem than yours? Do you regularly let them know that? Yeah, I know I did that, but look what you did. Remember what Jesus will come and say in chapter seven? He goes, hey, you got this big giant log sticking out. You should probably take care of that. And then you'll be able to actually help because yeah, their sin is a problem too. But before you become like the sin caller outer person, is there a mourning in your own life? Because those who mourn over their sin, over their spiritual poverty, over the effects that it has, will be comforted. That's good news, isn't it? Both comforted ultimately in the resurrection when even our struggle with sin will be no more, but comforted even now, experience God's consolation, his forgiveness, his transformation as he turns and writes you and leads you in this Repentance, the comfort that Jesus promises here is that already not yet comfort that many of us have experienced. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's look at the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? You may have heard the, the, the saying before, meekness is not weakness. That's true. Yeah, to be meek is not to be weak. And it's not to be a pushover. It's not to be timid. It's not to be shy, paralyzingly awkward in social situations. That's not what it means to be meek. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he described meekness like this. He said, meekness is a humble and gentle attitude toward others which is determined by a true estimation of ourselves. Sam Storms said that meekness is living in accordance with the abilities that God has given us. Not pressing ourselves into situations we're not equipped to handle, nor shying away from the situations that we can handle having an appropriate estimation of ourselves. Several of the commentators I looked at this week, they made the connection between meekness and the previous two Beatitudes. It's in relation to our awareness of our poorness of spirit and our mourning over sin, the outcome is meekness in our attitudes toward others. So think about it this way. You may be someone where you can on your own before the Lord readily acknowledge, confess your sin, your struggle. But what do you do when someone else brings it to you? Points out to you where you fall short. Points out to you the habits in your life that you wish you could break and are embarrassed of. It's not just what you acknowledge before God, but when others acknowledge it to you, that's the measure of your meekness. Of these four, that's the one that, man, I've been staring that one in the, uh, in the face this week going, oh Lord, lead me in that. My family knows they often have to convince me, convince me of things that I probably would regularly acknowledge on my own before the Lord. And even times afterward, oh Lord, they're right. Dang it, I didn't see it. And I fought against it. Lord, give me meekness. Give me meekness, an honest estimation of myself that leads me, I think, to what we'll look at next week, an attitude of mercy toward others because I see in myself that same need for growth and change. And again, Jesus says that this meekness is the blessed life, the good life in the midst of a broken world because he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Whoa, <laughs> that's a big promise, right? This is the one that seems most clearly Jesus is quoting from elsewhere in scripture. This comes almost straight out of Psalm 37. One of the Psalms of David, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but I highly recommend you take some time, even this afternoon, read through Psalm 37 because it reiterates the same point over and over again. The whole Psalm just is this repeated statement of this whole, here's the idea. Do not be afraid of the wicked. Don't fear the prideful, boasting, wicked people in the world because they won't be around for long, David says. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. And you can look for them, but you won't find them because they will be no more. 
and the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Do you believe that? We often say it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, right? We often say, hey, we, be we need leaders who will kick butts and take names. The reality is you and I, if we used our, exercised our responsibility to vote on Tuesday, didn't vote for many weak, uh, meek people because there weren't many meek people on the ballot. Because I think that the world in which we live does not think that this kind of life works. This ain't the way to get things done. You gotta run the attack ads. You gotta basically destroy you, your opponent, make it where all they can do is crawl into a hole and die. Otherwise you can't win and you can't move your agenda forward. And yet Jesus says, when all of that falls by the wayside, who will be left standing? The meek. When all the pride and loftiness of people, when all the war machines have stopped, when the smear campaigns have ended, when the boasters and braggers, the macho, I'm a lion, not a sheep kind of people, when they all fell, fall and fade to the wayside, who will be left standing? The meek, the humble, those who come to this king acknowledging their poorness of spirit and readily acknowledge it to those around them. Nothing in my hands I bring. I'm banking everything on the promise that God has what I need. God has what I need. Do you see this in your life? Do you hunger for it? That's the last one we'll look at today. Matthew chapter five, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty, who don't minimize their sin, but mourn over it, who are meek and honest and humble, gentle with others because you're aware of your own faults and flaws. It makes you hungry. You hunger and thirst for righteousness because you know you need it and you know you're not gonna get it on your own. And what's the promise that Jesus gives here? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. They shall be satisfied. And satisfied with what? The very thing they're hungry for. The very righteousness that they recognize they need, they know that they don't have. Now here, stop with me. Think about this for a second. Many people would look at this and say, this is talking about the doctrine of justification, which is a very true biblical doctrine. Go with me on this. The doctrine of justification, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically this. That because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father and then his sacrificial death as our substitute in our place, now when we come to God by faith in Jesus, he declares us righteous because Jesus is righteous. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Amen? That is a true and good and precious biblical doctrine. And I think that Jesus is talking about even more than that. The doctrine of justification, it's, it's, I would say this, uh, come back. 
Throughout the Bible, here's the idea. Jesus says they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And throughout the Bible, righteousness is not only a legal term in terms of our standing before the law, it is even probably more so a relational term. It has to do with how we operate with a sense of rightness, justice in our relationships with others. We're already starting to see that kind of horizontal turn. The first four kind of more focus us vertically on how we approach God. And as he moves through, it's also the way that we operate in our relationships with others. And this one right here is kind of, I would say, the hinge of that. Jesus is saying, yes, I, I do think the rest of the New Testament absolutely teaches we are justified, declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. But that righteousness declared in us because of our faith in Jesus begins to work its way through us. If you are truly hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you not only crave forgiveness and absolution, you crave to act rightly in the world. You read Jesus' two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, yes, I want that. I want to be that kind of person. I want the righteousness to work out through my life as a testimony to those around us that Jesus truly is king. Yes, I come to Jesus by faith, but I also follow him by faith into this righteous way of living that he sets out for me. The way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this, For our sake, God, he, God, made Jesus, him, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, there is only one way that your hunger can be satisfied and it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. But this verse describes not only the way that God sees us in light of Jesus. This also speaks to who we are becoming by God's grace. Do you see that? that we might become the righteousness of God expressed in this world through the way that we live as this different kind of people. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not just some impossible standard that we cannot reach that is meant to drive us on our knees and help us see our need for Jesus. That's the way many people have looked at this sermon. This is not just an impossible standard that shows us our need for Jesus. Remember, this is a sermon that has been given to disciples, to those who have chosen to follow this Jesus. And if you flip back one chapter in Matthew, do you remember what Jesus said to the first people that he called to follow him? He said, follow me, because I'm going to make something out of you. I will make you fishers of men. This sermon, these beatitudes, they describe the kind of people that Jesus is making and will make us into as we follow him. Does that make sense? We are apprentices with this Jesus. 
He's leading us and training us into this very lifestyle that we see. Yes, we come to Jesus by faith and by faith we are declared righteous. And by faith we follow this Jesus and this righteousness begins to be expressed through our lives. That's what it means to be satisfied. That's what it means to be salt and light. So church, we got a lot more to cover next week. But just as we reflect back on these first four statements of Jesus, remember those questions I gave you at the beginning. Do you truly believe that poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering for righteousness, that's the good life? Do you believe that? Do you believe that living out these qualities in our lives is the way that we shine light to the world? Show their need for Jesus by acknowledging our need for Jesus. And lastly, are you willing to follow Jesus on this path? Are you willing to encourage others, those you're walking with, your children, your spouse, This is the truly blessed life. This is the life of the kingdom of heaven in this world, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, give us humility. Give us an awareness of our need for you. Would you give us true emotion, true emotional response to the things in our life, things in our world that are out of sorts and wrong that we might mourn and long for your comfort? Would you give us meekness? Not those who set ourselves up as better than those around us, but those who have a proper estimation of ourselves which leads us in mercy toward those around us. Jesus, would we truly hunger and thirst for the righteousness that is not only given to us by faith, but then worked out in us so that people might see our lives and glorify our Father in heaven. This is what it means to live as citizens of your kingdom among the kingdoms of this world. Would you lead us forward by your grace, we pray. Amen.